Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. We are back with Chapter 4 of Peace. This episode will be our sixth of seven recap episodes. We'll be talking about pages 252 to 262 in the Orb 2012 edition. Before we get into the recap today, we want to let all of you know about a Patreon goal that we are closing in on. And this is a Patreon goal uh, about us reading some G.K. Chesterton, who, of course, comes up in Gene Wolfe all the time. Uh, but he also comes up in Neil Gaiman all the time. And so Brandon and I are going to team up with Brent to cover The Man Who Was Thursday on Patreon. I'm really excited to do this, and I'm excited that we're getting so close to it. Yeah, this is one of Chesterton's most well-known books, I think. And uh, I don't know, I've known about this book since like 2006, maybe. And if I had known Brent then, I would have been excited to talk to you guys about it, but <laughs> I didn't. So I'm even more excited now and uh, really cannot wait to hit that goal. And I think anyone who joins us will find so much to listen to so many more bonus episodes on our patreon page we've just done at the mountains of madness there's tons of other stuff there too and then they're going to get the man who was thursday so i think it's a it's a great time to join us on patreon to get us to the man who was thursday and to listen to a lot of the bonus episodes but anyway we're here to continue our coverage of peace we only have two more recaps left to go in this chapter before we do our eight or ten wrap-up episodes i guess i'm not sure what chapter four is going to look like uh in this section we're going to be back at Gold's Bookshop. We're going to learn a bit more about Cape Boyne's diary. Lots to cover today. There is so much to cover today, but we're actually going to open with a very strange section uh, that is confusing, I think, as you're, you're just encountering it as you're reading along. It's only a page long, but it really is not from anything that we've had before in the book. What it is, is the, the mill farm in the 19th century. It's the midst of the Civil War. And this account is from the perspective of Kate Boyne, but it is not actually her diary. Uh, this is a third-person, fictionalized account. It's got direct speech. It's got character descriptions. It's really an excerpt from some story about Kate Boyne. And the story is this. Kate Boyne is at the farm alone when some ruffians arrive, and they want to know where everyone else is. Mr. Mill and Sean are in town, but they're very definitely going to be back, she says. And Mrs. Mill has taken Hannah and Mary with her to Boston to see her mother. And there isn't really any plot to this scene because Wolf cuts it off here. So, you know, there aren't any characters with objectives to achieve. There aren't any, you know, antagonists to, to thwart them or any other you know, narrative elements. Uh, though, of course, right, we can maybe fill some of that in because it seems clear that this must be William Clark Quantrill's mercenary unit. But still, this is a very strange way to include this in the text. It's not the diary. It's not a paraphrasing of the diary which is what I at least would expect. And so I, I just, I guess, Brandon, what I'm wondering here is, are we supposed to imagine that Weir is in the replica of Mab Crawford's kitchen that he has in his museum mansion, just writing this one random scene of a story based on a diary that he read 20 years ago? Is that how this section is an artifact in the book? Uh, I think so. I don't know. I mean, it is a weird way, as you point out, to introduce the text of the diary to us, like you and me or anyone as a reader of peace, you know, to those of us 
who have already been treated to stories in the text that have been passed down via oral tradition or, you know, those found in books we might actually come across, like Lang's Green Fairy Book, although the story of Olay is not found in Lang's Green Fairy Book. So I don't know what to make of such a blatantly prosaic rendition of this scene in the diary that Kate wrote. We assume she didn't write this in the third person like this because it would raise the question of whether the diary documented, you know, Kate's fantasies more than her just writing down her mundane experiences. So, yeah, it does feel like we are for some reason in Weir's recollection of the event in the same way that we were in his recollection of the retelling of the Banshee story as told by Hannah Mill when he's a child. It's told to Hannah by Kate who sees Dennis in the background. Uh, but honestly, I don't know what the meta narrative like function of presenting the text to us in this way is in this novel. This one, I think, does stand out from all those other examples that you brought up because those tell us where the information is coming from. It is clearly Wolf paraphrasing something or narrating a story that someone else told to him. Most of those stories, the reason that we're getting them in the third person is because they're really being told by a character in the book, right? But that's not what's happening here. No one no one is telling this story to Weir, and then he's relaying to us in the book piece what he heard, you know, at some other point in his life. This is just a retelling of something that we assume that he read in the diary. And so it's yeah, it just seems qualitatively different than all the other stories in the story that we get. And then we just come out of it. Yeah, it doesn't also doesn't seem to have any real analog to Weir's life or the people in Weir's life in any way, except as it pertains to this buried treasure story. As a total aside, I feel like I grew up with stories where buried treasure was just like hiding around every quarter and could be found digging around in the woods or something along those lines, like, you know, the Goonies or the Dennis the Menace <laughs> movie or like half a dozen Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew mysteries, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. Like all of these stories are maybe patterned on Treasure Island a little bit. And this tale here has that same kind of energy. You know, there's this ruffian who has to hide his gold and come back for it later. But then, I don't know, maybe he's apprehended before he can do so. The point I'm trying to make is this. I have at least like an eighth of an eye on kids' media. And this kind of story seems to have completely disappeared. Well, I am currently reading the first Nancy Drew book to Finch right now, which I, I guess technically would not be a buried treasure story, but it is a search for a treasure that is, uh, it's a hidden treasure story, I guess, not a buried <laughs> treasure story. But uh, I don't know. That's for the uh, Nancy Drew podcast that we're going to we're gonna start, which actually I would be super into doing. But let's, uh, let's go get to the buried treasure here in this book. The next scene is also short. It's maybe even a little protracted for what it needs to accomplish. Lois has continued reading Kate Boyne's diary, and she is determined to find this gold, and she wants Weir to help her. But this scene shows us that Weir is skeptical, really, about this whole business. The geographic details in the diary maybe aren't quite right. He also doesn't understand why Quantrill would bury the gold here to begin with, or maybe even bury it at all to begin with. But he is going to help, and so they load up the gear into the trunk of his car— and they set out for Sugar Creek to look for the farm where Weir's childhood cook grew up. But this is all that we're going to get of this buried treasure adventure, at least in this episode. Uh, listen, I'm pretty hung up on this bit of tool language that we ended our last episode on. It's still stuck in my craw. And I think the fact that it's absolutely 
a shovel and pick here that get loaded into Weir's car must mean that there's something specific that either Wolf or Weir wants us to pay attention to with regard to the Matic and the brand new Garden Spade. Especially because when you return to this adventure, and you're right to point out that you know this adventure narration basically stops at this point here, uh, the shovel is totally like a real digging shovel and not a garden tool. I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting to the point in reading this book where I feel we're going to have to dedicate at least like one full chapter four wrap up episode to sorting out this mystery of the the spade versus the shovel. Clay Temple Media and the Mystery of the Spade yes. is uh, a book no one wants to read. But, no. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, the next section is quite long. And in fact, it is going to take us all the way to the end of this episode. We are back now in Gold's Bookshop, and some time has passed since Weir was last here. And also, some time has passed since the previous section, since this conversation between Weir and Lois. And in fact, when Gold asks about Lois, Weir explains that they won't be seeing her again because she has moved away. And we learn as well that Mr. Gold himself is from Germany and that he left Breslau in 1928, and he laments the death of the old world in fire and blood. And in particular, he laments that in this new world, uh, by which he means this high modern world, his son Aaron is not learning to take over the bookshop as the, the family business. Uh, what he's done instead is gone off to start his own profession, working for someone else. Uh, and of course, this is not the first lamentation that we've had in this book. Uh, but let's get to the first big chunk of this long scene, which is largely going to be about books and is super awesome. Weir is here to snoop around a bit, and we're going to learn why later. When Gold wanders off to another part of the store... Weir walks to the back of the shop where Gold's office is, and he sees that Gold has a number of old, rare books laid out on a table. Weir is interested in these books, and so he picks up one called Marvels of Science by somebody named Morister. Uh, we'll talk about who that is in just a moment. And while this scene has some suspense to it, right, like, what is Weir looking for? Is he going to get caught? That sort of thing. It's not what Wolf, or you know, maybe Weir, I guess, writes down here. Rather, what we get is about this book that he's looking at, and Weir reads from it for a while. Uh, there's a random bit in the, the middle of the book here. And so we get two dense paragraphs of paraphrasing at this point, and I'm just going to go ahead and paraphrase the paraphrase, and then we can pause and try to digest all of this. And let's remember that this book is called Marvels of Science, and Marvels here is spelled with, with two L's here. And so from that spelling, we can infer that this is an early modern book, uh, though you know, perhaps it's actually a translation of an ancient or medieval text that we don't know without any outside information. At any rate, the section that we reads is about devils and angels, and more precisely, it's about how to summon them by means of a scientific procedure. We do not learn what that procedure is, though, because what Weir is most interested in telling us about is Morister's description of angels, and then especially Morister's description of heaven and hell. So first, the angels. Contrary to popular depictions, angels are not humans with wings sprouting out of their shoulder blades. Rather, they are winged creatures with hands at the end of their wings, uh, so the wings and arms are all one part of the anatomy, much more like a, a bat. And they also have the faces of human children. Second, heaven. And it's these descriptions of heaven and hell that I think are, are really going to matter the most at the end of the book, so I'm going to really emphasize these here. 
According to angels whom Morister has summoned, heaven is a land of hills and terraced gardens with cold, blue, freshwater seas. And heaven is a a weird kind of fractal shape. I mean, the word fractal, it's not actually in the text, but heaven is made up of interlocking areas that are shaped like angels. And it just repeats itself over and over again, always different and yet always the same. And these distinct angel shapes, they touch each other at the feet and the wingtips, and so you can pass from region to region. And something implied in this description is that heaven is for angels. Uh, The text says, for each angel, heaven is perfect, as each is unique. But then we get the description of hell. Hell is a country of marshes, cindery plains, burned cities, diseased brothels, tangled forests, and bestial dens. Hell also repeats itself over and over, like heaven does. Hell is inhabited by devils, and no two devils share the same shape or appearance. And and some of them have too many limbs, some have too few, others have limbs just entirely in the wrong places on their bodies. Some of the devils have human heads or don't have faces, and some even have faces like dead people, and still others have faces of those they hate, so that when they see themselves in a mirror, they will detest what they see. Still, though, even though they look like this, they all think that they look good, and more importantly, they think that they are morally good. One last note here is that when they die, murderers and their victims become one single devil, Uh, at least that is if the murder victim was also an evil person, a wicked person in life. And so what's implied here is that devils are dead people. They are not fallen angels the way that we get in Milton, for example. And so I wonder, you know, does this suggest that angels also are dead people? And is that why there are only angels in heaven and no humans? Uh, Yes. And also, no. I think this (laughs) is at least one point in the novel where peace becomes, I'll use the phrase here, like hermetically sealed. That is to say that this section here about marvels of science is not referring to a cosmology that like you and I would find out here in our world, uh, but rather is referring to a cosmology that is already present in the book itself. And so there's much we can make of what this imagery is pointing to here. I think it's something very specific that Weir has in mind that he's pointing out to us, at least about heaven. And then if what he's pointing out to us about heaven is part of this, you know, kind of closed text, uh, a text that is referring more to itself than outside itself, then surely what is said about hell can also be applied. I mean, this bit about the mirror is really hard to ignore, given Weir's long look in the mirror in Vanessa's office early in the book. But to make my point a little clearer here, I want to return to the image of heaven that you described just a moment ago. The author of Marvels of Science, Morister, writes that first, heaven is populated by angels who have the faces of children, and that it is, in terms of geographic features, made of terraced gardens and cold, blue, freshwater seas. All right, now I'm going to read a passage from chapter one here. It seems to me that the garden, I mean, little Joe's garden, basking forever in the sunshine of its Tyrrhenian afternoon is the core and root of the real world, to which all this America is only a miniature in a locket in a forgotten drawer. And this thought reminds me, and is reinforced by memory, of Dante's Paradiso, in which, because the wisdom of this world was folly of the next, the earth stood physically central, 
surrounded by the limbus of the moon, and of all spheres, greater and greater, and at last by God, but in which this physical reality was, in the end, delusive. God standing central in spiritual truth, and our poor earth cast out, peripheral to the concerns of heaven, save when the memory of it waked with something not unlike an impure nostalgia. The great saints and the Christ form the contemplation of triune God. This passage from chapter one, when taken with this description of heaven in chapter four, indicate to me that the landscape found in the painting of Weir's Uncle Joe, who, remember, died as a child, just as Bobby Black did, is the model for heaven, in a sense, in Weir's private cosmology. And that makes sense as he fiercely protects this image from the onslaught of apples being thrown at it, and that this is also maybe the last innocent moment in Weir's life. And of course, there is a fly in the ointment here regarding you know the description of freshwater seas in heaven rather than the Tyrrhenian Sea, which is a part of the Mediterranean, so it's salt water. This is not the only garden description that we've had in the book, although this one is amazing. And we spent a lot of time on it in the chapter one discussion episode, and we'll return to it certainly and spend a lot more time on it. But we get other descriptions of gardens that also are wrapped up in this post-apocalyptic imagery that we've been cataloging as well. And all of those images of these nice gardens seem really like they are the same sort of thing that is being described here by Morister as what heaven is like. And so now reading backwards, and certainly this is work that we will have to do at the end of the book, those all seem to be descriptions of heaven then, visions of heaven that Weir has had throughout his life or is having as he's wandering around his... uh, Funhouse Museum Mansion. Yeah, we're absolutely going to be cataloging these examples. And I think more are going to come up in the next two episodes before uh, we do our wrap-up episode. I also want to point out that there are plenty of images in the novel, too, that correlate with this description of hell, including you know people we've met that we've admired, especially those at the circus. And it really doesn't sit right with me to think of those people as demons So it's really on me to come up with a workaround at some point before we finish the novel in order to say something else is going on here. But I'll say this too. This fusion of the two souls of the murderer and their victim, when they are both evil, I think should really put us on high alert. This is a notion we are absolutely going to have to come back to at the end of the book, especially considering the overlap here uh, with the idea you know, or or the suggestion of the narrator being in hell that we also find in the fifth head of Cerberus. I don't think that's quite what the case is here, but I do think that Weir is like us in some ways, and that he's using the language of one paradigm or one cosmology to describe something that is beyond the limits of that paradigm or in that, in this case, cosmology. So Weir's kind of stuck in this maybe Western cosmological notion of heaven and hell, maybe particularly uh, Christian, but what he's describing maybe doesn't fit into that cosmology. No, I certainly don't think that it actually does at all, though that will be part of the fun when we're done getting all of this information and can really try to, I don't know, put together a sort of coherent mystical cosmology that that Weir actually has here in this book. But it does seem to me right up to this point, and you know, we're mostly done with this book at this point, but it does seem to me that hell 
is a place on earth or hell is a situation that perhaps we make for ourselves on earth, but heaven seems to be this aspirational place for Weir, this place that he has visions of, that he he yearns for in some way. And so that's something we're going to need to take stock of as well. Well, we do have more to narrate here in this episode today, but before we actually get back to Gold Shop, we still need to actually talk about what this book is, because you and I, at least, Brandon, have encountered this book before, though not here in peace. Right. This book came up when we covered Lovecraft's short story, The Festival. Uh, We have a whole Elder Sign episode about that, so I guess I won't go into it here. But I will say that the first-person narrator of that story does not actually read from Morister's Marvels of Science. He only sees it in a stack of books. Um, You know, that character instead gets absorbed in the Necronomicon and then proceeds to have a really bad Christmas. But even in the festival, Marvels of Science is a book that really refers to another text. It's an illusion um, because Marvels of Science first showed up in an Ambrose Bierce story called The Man and the Snake. And here's what we get from that text, because there is an example of uh, Morister's work in The Man and the Snake. It is of veritable report and attested of so many that there be now of wise and learned none to gainsay it, that the serpent his eye hath a magnetic property, that whoso falleth into its suasion is drawn forwards in, despite of his will, and perisheth miserable by the creature his bite. Um, that's all we get of marvels of science, and then. You know, the rest of the story is kind of about a man and a snake. <laughs> so <laughs> you can read it if you like. It's got a fun little twist ending. And that's about it for literary references to Marvels of Science. It's a book made up by Beers to introduce this story about hubris, really, and a snake. And then it's referenced once by Lovecraft. And when I discovered this, I really had to remind myself that we live in a time where it's like relatively easy for us to find these references with the use of the internet. But in the 70s, this reference would have, I have to believe, been really far outside of the mainstream. And so it would have been really obscure. And it would have been easy to either believe, I think, by the audience of this book, that this book was either real or that Wolf himself invented it for his own uses. And it Feels like there's a way in which Wolf at least reinvents this book here for his own uses. Right. I mean, just to be clear, the text of this book <laughs> that Weir is reading here, right, as we get in peace, Gene Wolfe wrote that. He made that up, that there, there's not from a real book. That's all made up by Gene Wolfe. But this book is written in the heyday of people thinking that the Necronomicon is a real book as as well, right? And and, and other books, too, that these weird fiction writers have, have invented. People thought they were they were real and have tried to find them. And so Wolf is perhaps playing a bit of a, a joke here by just carrying on as if this book is real by by quoting it here in a a way that actually seems really plausible. I mean, Wolf is a master of pastiche, and the text that he gives us here feels like a 17th century demonology book or angelology book. It, it feels perfect for that. He's nailed the voice. And so you could easily read this, you know, be pre-internet and just think that this is a real book that Wolf has quoted from. You certainly could read Ambrose Bierce and think that that's referring to some obscure real book that, you know, Bierce had access to in some way, perhaps at some point in his life. And you might 
go to your librarian and ask to try to track that down and that sort of thing. And, you know, I'm saying all of this from experience because Brent and I certainly went to the library and asked for (laughs) copies of the Necronomicon a lot. Can we get that through interlibrary loan? You know, it's not not real, but we we didn't know. You know, that was all kind of pre-internet or at least uh, early days of the internet when, uh, I don't know, it was was really bulletin board systems is uh, is what it was in those days. Right. And everything was even more believable then. I mean, somebody would have said, it's real. And then you would have believed them. so it's the internet. Yeah, it's so true. But yeah, this is, it's a lot of fun that we have this reference here because we have done the festival and clearly, I mean, I don't even know that Wolf is taking this reference really from Bierce, although we certainly have seen Wolf use Ambrose Bierce before. He supplies the epigram to, to Silhouette and we made a, a big deal out of that. But I think that the real similarities here are with the festival. For one, Peace has a Christmas story too. The festival is Lovecraft's Christmas short story, you know, which is <laughs> awesome. And um, there's there's more that we find actually in Lovecraft's story, the festival, that is going to show up here in the the end of chapter four of Peace. Though I don't want to, I don't want us to get too far ahead of ourselves here. And I should say too, before we move on as well, that we already plan to take a look at this Ambrose Bierce short story, the the Man in the Snake. We're going to do that as a bonus bonus episode on Patreon. We won't release that until after we're all the way done with Peace, but uh, we'll probably do that shortly after we are done. But we are still actually not done talking about books before we carry on with the narrative of peace. And this other book that we need to talk about is Colt de Gaulle by the Comte d'Erlette. Gold claims to have acquired the book from a book dealer in Paris, and that surprisingly, it actually was not very difficult to find. The most difficult part really was dealing with customs. And it is a creepy book, physically at least, it is a creepy book, because it is bound in human skin. But this also is not a real book. I mean, at least not in our world, it's not a real book. And it also derives from the heart of the material that we cover on Elder Sign, though this is actually from a story that we haven't covered yet, though it is one of my favorite stories. It's a story that I last read really almost a decade ago now, but I got to read it to my niece when we were camping together, and it was perfect for that. But uh, what is this book, Brandon? The Cult to Ghoul is a book about ghouls <laughs> written by the Comte Let, And all of that is actually just what we just said. So there's nothing new there. But the book is mentioned first, actually in a Robert Block story called The Suicide in the Study. Um, and that's interesting here because I think it's this passage where in this story where Gold uh, gets the notion that this book is bound in human skin. Here's the passage from Block's story. It was only necessary for one to survive the walls of his study for corroboration. Only a wizard would possess those moldering, maggoty volumes of monstrous and fantastic lore. Only a thaumaturgical adept would dare the darker mysteries of the Necronomicon, Ludwig Prinz's Mysteries of the Worm, the Black Rites of Mad Luva Karaf, Priest of Bast, or Comterlet's ghastly Cult de Ghouls. No one save a sorcerer would have access to the ancient manuscripts bound in Ethiopian skin or burned such rich and aphrodisiac incense in an enshrined skull. Who else would fill the mercifully cloaking darkness of the room with curious relics, mortuary souvenirs from ravished graves, or worm-demolished scrolls of the primal dead? Now, this book, you know, as well as Comte uh, is also found in two 
Lovecraft tales. And these are the ones that I think one of these is ones you read on a camping trip, Glenn. Um, so it's found in the shadow out of time and then also the haunter in the dark. But neither of those stories really describe the cult to ghoul as a, as an artifact, as a book. I should also mention here that Comterlet was Lovecraft's pet name for August Leth, and the haunter in the dark was dedicated to Robert Block. So all of this is pretty obscure unless you're super into the Weird Tales magazine. But if you're writing a general fiction for a general fiction audience in the early 1970s, you know, that's going to be largely made up of middle-aged men and women. This is this is obscure stuff. Right. And at this point in the history of Lovecraft publications, Lovecraft is really deemed to be the property of August Derleth, who is publishing, is reprinting Lovecraft stories through his his personal press called Arkham House. And that almost certainly is where Wolf in encountered Lovecraft and also where he would have encountered August Derleth. August Derleth uh, famously and perhaps infamously would publish some of his own stories as if they were actually written by Lovecraft uh, because they were riffs on Lovecraft works or you know, taken from things he wrote in notes or something like that. I read a lot of these when I was an adolescent as well. And of course, as I've come to adulthood and as we've had a resurgence of actual Lovecraft publishing and Lovecraft scholarship, I've realized that like half of the stories I thought were by Lovecraft when I was a kid were actually by <laughs> August Derleth or just other people's work who Derleth was including in those publications. But yeah, I was uh, referring to The Haunter of the Dark. That is the story that I read around the campfire, which we have not covered yet. Um, we have not covered the Robert Block story either on Elder Sign. But again, we're going to do both of those as Patreon bonuses here when we're done with our wrap-up episodes at the end of Peace. I think that will be a fun thing to do. And The Haunter of the Dark, it's it's Lovecraft's last story. And it's not only dedicated to Robert Block. Robert Block is the main character of that story. And it, it's actually a riff on something else that Robert Block had written. This was sort of part of their friendship, was writing stories based on each other's work and inserting each other into the stories and so on. So we'll do a little mini-series on that over on Patreon that I think will be a ton of fun to do. Yeah, the, the stack of books that this uh, that piece is either referring to or I need to uh, to do research on is is getting pretty pretty high here, pretty high in the old office. Well, it's just awesome that you know the Venn diagram of the two shows that we do is right here in Gold's Bookshop, essentially, <laughs> and uh, so it's just super cool. It's a it's a really good reason for us to do that as a kind of crossover, right? So obviously, something that we'll talk about as we are doing bonus episodes on these stories is we'll make sure we do a little segment to look back at what Wolf has done here and see how that fits in with what we get in the original texts here that Wolf is is riffing on and you know rethink some of these scenes here in chapter four in light of you know, having done the the work that we do to to do an episode on on one of these stories. So I'm looking forward to doing that. But all right, now let's proceed with the narrative here. Uh, really, the question is, what is the story with we're going to Gold's shop and poking around? What's going to happen? Well, the deal is this. Weir thinks that Gold is a forger. He thinks that these rare books that Gold sells are not rare books at all, that they are made up by Gold. Now, he does not sell these out of the, the shop here in Cashinsville, of course, right? He sells these to wealthy collectors or he sells them to institutions. And for example, he's already sold Cold de Gaulle to a college library in Massachusetts. And uh, he does not say Miskatonic University, but uh, he doesn't have to. We know that's <laughs> We know that's what he means here, right? 
But at any rate, this is a lucrative business. Colt Gould's has sold for what today would be almost $7,000. And The Lusty Lawyer, he sold to Stuart Blaine for $2,000. And even the diary that the library purchased would today cost $600. So it's it's doing all right here. And the store is really just a front. It's a, a storeroom and it's office space for gold. It's It's not the actual business at all. And so... Weir now accuses Gold of forging these books. And in particular, he knows that Kate Boyne did not write that diary. And he pokes several holes in the account that he thinks Gold himself has invented here. But the real proof for Weir is that he knows that Hannah Mill, his his childhood cook, will remember, he knows that Hannah Mill never visited Boston, as the diary claims. And Gold does not deny the claim, uh, though he does try to counter Weir's arguments about the falsity of the diary. And we don't get the end of their conversation here. Weir just writes, I left him sitting there and went back to my apartment. So at this point, it it is not clear where this is going next. No, it's not clear at all. And I, I was certainly taken off guard by what happens as a result of this conversation. That's something we'll get to in the next episode. But I do think that this is the end of the conversation between Weir and Gold. Weir basically goes through like a a hard-boiled detective's breakdown of the case, and then he exits the scene, just like David Caruso walking out of frame on an episode of CSI Miami. (laughs) Weir, Weir thinks he's doing something cool, like he's seen film stars like Humphrey Bogart do. You know, you break down the bad guy, and then you leave him broken and walk away. Uh, But doing something like this in real life is as silly as David Caruso taking a few steps to the right, and then somehow that suggests to the audience that something has been concluded. I mean, it just hasn't. Uh, Wolf is playing with that concept here. Obviously, nothing has been concluded, but time continues to move along at its typical pace, and now Weir has to contend with his own life rather than just ending a scene. Yeah, Murder, She Wrote at least gives us uh, a confession then, <laughs> and then an epilogue in which we get a, a freeze frame on a, on a, uh, a laughing moment, which <laughs> is a much better way to end an episode than uh, somebody taking a few steps. And, and is it putting on sunglasses? Is it taking off the sun? I'm not sure. Whatever which, but... he wants to do. I don't think he's getting any direction on that uh, particular bit of business. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm with you here. I mean, there definitely is something missing from this scene, which is that we're just to be clear, we're not digging on wolf storytelling here. In fact, we're praising it, right? Because the point is that we want to know what actually is is happening here and what's what's going to come next. And so this is a great way to break this off without giving it to us and keeping us turning pages. Right. And and, and the point is, as we'll see in just a moment, that Weir just goes on. And if this were like a play or a TV show or the the end of a scene, we'd have some sort of conclusion here, even if it's rolling credits. Um, But I think Wolf is making the point of having us sit with Weir in the moment after this sort of weak confrontation takes place. Right, because there isn't even a section break here. And so Weir just continues telling us what he got up to back at his apartment. And something that he told Mr. Gold while he was talking about the diary is that while he and Lois were looking for the buried treasure, they got into a a, a fight. And so now Weir is thinking about how Lois is out of his life. Or actually, he corrects himself here and says she's obviously not out of his life. She's been a part of his life, but she is now out of his future. And something else that he told Mr. Gold is that he once found a gold coin on the bank of the river while he was on a date there in high school. 
And we know, or at least can suspect, that this was with Margaret Lorne. And it is Margaret Lorne that he's thinking about now. And Weir tells us that he sometimes calls her house just to hear her voice, though often it's her husband or one of her kids who answers the phone. He's also sent her flowers once. He has seen her in person on the streets of downtown Cashinsville, though those encounters actually occur far less frequently than should be statistically likely. But at any rate, what really matters is that we're now, at this point, he's, he's wondering what went wrong. He was intelligent, was hardworking. He also was going to inherit his father's estate by the time he was 30. And while that estate in itself would not have been enough to live on, it would have allowed them to live very comfortably from his salary. And also, they loved each other. But none of this happened. He, he did not marry her. And Weir writes that instead, he found himself a poor man at 40 and a very rich one at 50, and he never found Margaret at all. And there is no way that we can read this line and not speculate about what happened. And in particular, I'm curious about what happened with the inheritance, uh, but there is at this point, I think, no hint that we're going to find out with any real specificity. Yeah, this whole section is is kind of a series of vagaries, and so I guess I don't have too much to say about it. I have a few things, though. Weir gives us no information about what happened between him and Lois. They had a disagreement. Lois left town, and Weir, hard as he might continue to try, can never, and this is what he says, eradicate her from his past. That's a, a strange word choice, in my opinion. But then Weir tells us that like when he gets down or blue or whatever, he sometimes calls up Margaret Lorne and just like breathes into the phone. And this is some <laughs> yeah, totally yeah. normal behavior, too. And now whenever Weir and Margaret Lorne run into each other, they're very formal with one another. So, yeah, Glenn, you're absolutely right. We have to consider the sorts of things that might cause uh, a shift, this kind of shift in behavior between two people. It could be a really bad breakup or something. Uh, but I don't think that's the case. I want to point back to chapter one here. I want to point out the the dream that uh, is also an example of heaven that we had in, actually, this is chapter two. And Weir says this, that it is best to remain 25 and happy. So my sense is that something happens to Weir shortly after he's 25 that alters the direction of his life, it leaves him from his father's inheritance, maybe. I don't know. But something happens. It could be the death of Aunt Olivia. But we don't know why he doesn't inherit from his father. Maybe there's nothing to inherit, but something's afoot. One of the things we have to consider here is the depression, which has come up already in this chapter, right? Stuart Blaine talked about how he made a killing in the depression. He's richer now than he's ever been because of the success of his bank during the Great Depression, even though clearly, right, that success was a zero-sum game, right? Everything that he gained was something that other people lost, and he was a predator who took advantage of other people's misfortune. And it, it seems likely to me that the Weirs were part of that misfortune, that you know, their money was in the stock market, the stock market crashed, and they just never regained their wealth at that point. But that understanding of, of what's happened here is, I think, complicated by the fact that we we know that still Weir went to college. And this is at a time when college has to be paid for up front. It is actually at a time when college was much more affordable than it is now, but you couldn't borrow that money in order to pay for it. You had to have it up front. And so, although college is significantly more expensive now than it would have been in the 1930s, it's 
accessible to people because you can borrow money, you can go into debt to do it. So it's accessible to the middle class uh, for sure, uh, whereas it really was an upper class thing in the 1930s with some, you know, some few exceptions, of course. But nonetheless, we're still managed to go to college. And so it's unclear, you know, to what extent the fortune was really ruined by the Depression. Maybe it was just damaged by the Depression. Money was still used to send Weir to college. Maybe that's what happened with his grandmother's house. They sold the house so he could go to college or something like that. But I was thinking along the lines of, you know, college being the thing that really happened that drove this wedge between him and Margaret Lorne. He just, he went away to college. Margaret Lorne did not because she's growing up on a farm. And so, you know, that's four years at least, maybe at six, if if Weir did some kind of master's degree in engineering as well, which would then also make 25, make a lot more sense as an age there. But that's that's kind of the sense that I have here, that it's just, I left my hometown and then came back to it. And well, things weren't the same as, as they were when I left them. They were supposed to be, but it turns out that, you know, my hometown didn't pause while I was gone. Yeah, that's all That's all well and good. I don't really know. I mean, my feeling is that Weir drove to the college that Professor Peacock taught at and went to school there. You know, we know he had a car, uh, what does he say, by his third year of college or something like that. I And then there's a train. I don't know. It's We're going to have to do some real homework, as we've pointed out on this timeline, and figure out just what Weir's life, like the events of Weir's life are. We don't even really know exactly when his parents came back uh, from their trip to Europe, which uh, my gut is after like 1929 or something like that. So I, yeah, I just don't, I just don't know. And this episode is not the episode for us to do that work on. I mean, we we have bantered about trying to figure out when exactly things are happening before. And certainly one of the things that we are going to have to do when we're done with the book is try to put together a coherent timeline with precise or as precise as we can get them dates on it. That will be an activity that, well, we'll do it behind the scenes and then present it to listeners, or perhaps I will present one to you and you can present one to me in you know part of the wrap-up episodes for the entire book. But I do think that knowing when things are happening in Weir's life will give us some some social context, you know, historical context, I mean, to understand what's going on in the society, in the world around him that will make some of these things, uh, you know, make, make more sense. And uh, it's work I'm looking forward to doing as well. But all right, we have just a little bit more to do today before we leave this episode behind. Weir is lamenting now. And He's lamenting, too, that he has never found his way back to the porch with the fireplace, uh, part of the, the replica of his childhood home. But he tells us that he has wandered the corridors of this funhouse museum mansion, and he has found the apartment that he lived in during the time that the events he's narrating now took place. It was a small place, and he didn't have a TV. There isn't even a desk in this apartment. And so now, Weir is writing this down for us. He's writing down what we are reading by sitting in a chair and propping his feet on the stool and writing on the pad of paper as it rests on his legs. And this is where we get the section break. This is where we're going to end the episode today. And it is, I think, a sad image to end on. Yeah, but... His apartment is bigger than Lois's, so he's got that going for him. You know, he makes sure to point that out to us. I don't know why. Yeah, also, we can't really close out this episode without pointing out that 
Weir thinks his pocket knife is in the old dresser next to this 1872 seated Liberty silver dollar that he found on his picnic with Margaret Lorne. Uh, I'm not a big coin person, but I did a little research on this. I don't think it bears too much relevance on the story other than to say that uh, the 1872 silver dollar is like the most common one to find. That's They made the most that year of this silver dollar. Um, but this picnic must be the one mentioned in the early part of chapter three, uh, where Weir talks about he and Margaret picnicking on the Kanakasi River. It's something that happens when they're both in high school. And this timeline business is really on my mind here, as I pointed out in this chapter. And I think it's because Wolf is doing a lot to suggest a timeline, even in the way that he presents Lois Arbuthnot's story, or at least he's trying to get us as readers to think about the way time is presented in the story. And and the way that Wolf presents Lois's story is kind of a miniature example of the way that information is presented throughout the rest of the novel. Uh, you know, this chapter, at least to my mind, is the chapter that is most about the rest of the novel in a way. Right. I mean, as we have talked about, we are now in the closing loop of what is clearly going to be something akin to a type of of ring composition, right? And so chapter four and chapter five are, are, I mean, I'm assuming chapter five, this is a prediction that I'm making here, right? Are going to, I think, both be reflective in nature, right? Looking backwards on episodes that have already happened, trying to bring things full circle, bring this, this ring composition to a close here. And I think one of the things that it does here in chapter four is suffuse everything with this tone of, of melancholy, like this nostalgic melancholy that I just don't think I felt in chapter one and chapter two. Right. Whereas like the last chapter we talked about ending on this really sinister note, this chapter is really full of this sense of, uh, of melancholy. I think that's a perfect word for it. Um, it's not quite like a, a depression, but it's this, maybe it's this sense of nostalgia, this just sense of loss of the past and just what took place in the past that that is on Weir's mind. It's lamentable. It's regret. It's, uh, yeah, melancholic. And well, I guess that's where we're just going to end this episode on this note of melancholy here. So once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. If you would like to support the network and help us cover The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton, and of course, then also get to listen to that episode, we hope that you'll join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. If you do that, you will then also get to listen to our bonus episode that's on The, the Haunter in the Dark by H.P. Lovecraft and also some Ambrose Bierce and also some Robert Block when we finish up Peace. And of course, there are also, at this point, I think just close to 100 bonus episodes on Patreon. So you get an awful lot by joining us there, and we hope you'll consider that. Next time, we are going to finish recapping this chapter. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.